0: If you had asked me a year ago to describe how my business would look today, I would never have mentioned virtual event design consulting or virtual event emceeing. But I would have said that I wanted to make a difference by helping participants get more out of the events they attended by giving them tools to network with each other. I would have said I wanted to be working closely with event organizers to help them design more engaging event experiences that offered more opportunities for community connections. I would have said I would want to be known as the go-to person to create higher ROI for event participants and therefore higher retention for association membership. And I would have also said that I'd like to be able to accomplish all of this while limiting my days in the road since I have two young children. Today, I have the opportunity to make a big impact on how event organizers create engaging virtual events. The message is the same. Events are about content and connection. Only the medium has changed. Now, the focus is on how virtual events need to integrate networking to remain relevant and meet the needs of participants. This new strategy is still aligned with my vision and values. I've been thinking about my shift as I've been onboarding Miracy coaching clients over the last month. These expert entrepreneurs all have passion and enthusiasm for their work. That's why they're ready to invest in themselves and their business idea by hiring a business strategy coach. They're also, like many business owners, trying to find their way forward during challenging times. Bright, shiny objects lurk around every corner, ready to distract them from their goals. It's hard to resist these temptations, especially when the original strategy is taking longer than expected to yield positive results. Of course, sometimes a pivot is needed. How can they be certain the new strategy is still aligned with their big picture goals? That's why Danny Inney, the founder of Miracy, suggests starting with a vision and values exercise. This is something I learned from working with him. Your challenge this week. Take a 30,000 foot view of your business. Discover the one to three things that you'll keep leaning into no matter the strategy. Five to 10 years from now, how will your business look and what about that vision makes you feel successful? What are you known for? What makes people want to work with you over your competitors? What makes you five to 10% different from them? Can you lean into this? What are your non-negotiables that you always or never will do? What would you never compromise? You may not have all the answers, but as you figure them out, this is the filter through which to consider any shift in strategy. No more chasing shiny objects. Try this, and let me know how it goes. Now, onto this week's interview. Today's guest is an educator, author, and entrepreneur who is on a mission to reimagine business and transform education. As the founder and CEO of Merisi, a business education company, he has developed innovative training programs that have raised the bar for online education. Some of the most popular training programs include Course Builders Laboratory, the Business Ignition Bootcamp, and the ACES Club. Over 5,000 value-driven entrepreneurs have been enrolled in these programs. His own entrepreneurial journey has had many twists and turns. He built Miracy after his previous startup imploded in 2008, leaving him a quarter million dollars in debt. But he's fond of saying that failure is only failure if it happens in the last chapter, Otherwise, it's a plot twist. Today, Miracy is a seven-figure business with 20 employees distributed all over the world. It's no wonder that many top leaders in the industry reach out when they need help with their business or strategy. He is the author of 10 books, including Teach and Grow Rich and Leverage Learning. His latest book, Teach Your Gift, was just released. Please join me in welcoming Danny Innie.
1: Uh Robbie, thank you so much for having me. I'm uh,
0: flattered and excited to be here. Danny, so much for being here and for joining us from your home office in Montreal. These days, we're all in our home offices, so it's working out great. I love that we have this medium to connect. As you know, the show is about building strong networks in the context of leadership. So tell me, how do you define leadership and when did you realize you had the skills to lead?
1: It's a great question. So um, I I think it's a fluid definition. So if you ask me again in five or 10 years, I might give you a different answer. But the way I see leadership right now is that there are a lot of things that we could be paying attention to uh, cognitively and emotionally. And a leader's job is to direct the focus for other people in terms of what they should be thinking about and what they should be focusing on feeling out of the array of options in front of them. And I mean, I guess this is something that we all do. It's something we always do when you know, when we are trying to get someone's attention and point it to the thing that we care about, right? This is something we have small children that are close in age. So, you know, this is what children do. So I've probably been doing it, you know, forever. And at some point, I realized that that's what I was doing.
0: Wow. Yeah. So at what point did that start to become a a thing you noticed though about yourself? Because like you said, this is a innate in some ways, but it also feels like you learned it and you grew into it over time. Is, was there a moment in life when, when you realized you had leadership skills? Were you always the person who sort of stepped up or people asked you to take leadership? Like, what was that like?
1: Um, you know, some people think about leadership in terms of a role, mm-hmm. and other people think about leadership in terms of uh, an action or a responsibility. And I've always kind of been in the latter. So, um, you know, a, a bit parallel to this, I've been an entrepreneur, since i was a kid like my my earliest entrepreneurial memory is when i was 12 years old and by the time like i quit school and i was 15 i started multiple businesses i didn't think of myself as an entrepreneur until i was in my mid-20s right until that point i was just like well no i'm just you know i'm, I'm doing projects so in kind of the same way Like, you know, showing up to take a leadership role where there is an opportunity to do so, where there is a void or a gap or or a need for leadership, I think that's something I've always done because the situation just kind of called for it. Um, I I don't think I really thought of myself as a leader until probably my mid to late 20s when I was leading a startup company.
0: So an important factor, of course, in being a leader is that people follow you, not just that you have great vision. Was that happening even early on? Like in those, you know grade school, high school, like, I mean, you, you dropped out at 15. So were you already like getting people sort of moving in that direction with you and learning how to do that and how people responded? I mean, it feels like it's, it's a real give and take sort of situation.
1: Um, I mean, yeah. So, you know, that's, that's what, but I, again, I, I almost push back a little bit on the, like, you know, this is what we all do with our friends. This is what we all do with our families I don't think the skill or strength or importance of a leader is defined by how big of a stage they stand on or how many people's attention they are directing. It's it's by how well and compassionately they direct the attention of whoever it is that they're, that they're interacting with.
0: So your earliest uh, memories of being an entrepreneur were 12. I, I actually got in trouble in grade school for selling something. <laughs> Um, so, uh, and by, by high school, I was selling gum, then candy and then bagel sandwiches. So things escalated quickly. Is, is candy like code? Uh, no, uh, literally I, <laughs> I got my parents to, uh, get a, a BJ's membership, a wholesale club membership. So I could buy candy for a quarter a piece and sell them for 50 cents a piece. And, nice. um, yeah, we were going there every like three days to to resupply. Yeah. And then bagel sandwiches. I don't know. It morphed into a whole, a whole thing for like a year. I was making sandwiches at night and bring them to school. So sounds cool. I, I know, right? Like this is, I love the, I didn't think of the entrepreneur. I mean, it, it's like a thing I did. I love the idea of it being project based, like it's just a project, but your project was big enough to make you decide that you were all in at 15 years old. What was it that got your attention at 15 that you were all in?
1: Well, so so those are uh, two different stories. So, like my just to, to share the story because I think it's uh, it's interesting that my first entrepreneurial memory, um, I was 12 years old, and uh, I got a two-dollar allowance for to buy lunch at the at the school cafeteria, and the thing that I liked on the menu was three dollars, um, and it didn't occur to me to just talk to my parents or negotiate or anything like that. It's so, like two dollars is what I had to work with, and you know a soda cost a dollar. And my friend would get a soda every day. And they wouldn't carry, like they had Coke and Pepsi or Sprite or whatever they had. They didn't have cream soda, which was his favorite. And I figured out that I could, you know, same kind of thing. I could buy like a a tray of 24 of them for a few dollars at Costco. And I could sell it to my friend for a dollar. It's the same dollar he was going to spend anyway. And this way I have a dollar for, you know, to get the lunch I wanted. And it was like controversial at school at the time. They were like, "You're taking advantage of your friend. Why are you taking money?" I'm like, "He's going to spend the dollar anyway. This way, he's getting what he wants." So it was just funny that like shift in in perspective. But um, I didn't actually quit school to start a business. I started a business because I quit school, and I was like, "What am I going to do with my time?" So. The story here is that um, if you had known me as a kid, I was like the the biggest goody two shoes nerdy little kid you can imagine. Like you know, perfect grades, got my homework done before leaving school every day. Teacher's pet. That was me. And then I get to the ninth grade, and it's like a switch flipped in my head, and I was like, I am so unbelievably bored. I can't take this anymore. And so I I cut class one day. I I just you know didn't go to school. I went. I did whatever else I did. And uh, I came back to school for the next class. And I was like, they're still going over the exact same thing. So I cut more classes. (laughs) And that became like a slippery slope. It quickly accelerated. Um, People who know me know that I'm, I'm an extreme personality. So I don't do things halfway. So in the first trimester of that year, I missed 152 periods. And the number just went up and up. And about a year and a half into this, and I was like super stealthy. And like, you know, my parents didn't know what was going on. It's like, yeah, you know, one of those things. How did I pull that off? But um, you know, but a year and a half into this, I kind of look at myself in the mirror and I'm like, okay, Danny, what's the plan? Like, am I just going to keep cutting class and going to the gym and watching MTV all day for like four more years? This is not a good plan. So I decided to make it official, quit school, and I was like, you know what? I guess I'll I'll start a business. That's what I'll do. And in terms of what the business was. My first thought was, well, I know I know how to build websites, which I didn't actually. I just knew a little bit of HTML. Um, but I guess I'll build websites. So uh, I went door to door in the town that I was living in. And I asked like the, like the, the commercial like street So I went into the shops and one by one asked them, Do you need a website? And I was so young and inexperienced, I didn't even realize that the clerk at the store is not the person who makes that decision. <laughs> but I kind of knocked on doors for a while. That never went anywhere. And a few months into this, I'm sitting at a friend's house. And we're playing uh, one of these educational video games with his little sister. And I look at it, and I say, you know, this is pretty simple. I'll bet I could build something like this myself. Um, I don't know why I thought I could do that. I had none of the prerequisite skills. But I was like, this looks simple. I'll bet I could do this. So we find the box that the game came in, um, look up the the company information. I call them up, and I get a meeting with the CEO. This is one of those things, that in hindsight, I'm like, I don't know how I did that. But at the time, it didn't occur to me that it was a big deal. So I just did. So I go to meet with this company and I walk into their office I shake the guy's hand I was like 15 and a half years old and I tell him um, I have a business proposition for you uh, I think I can build the games that you sell and uh, my mom has a degree in psychology I tell him uh, I've conferred with a psychologist and I've come to the conclusion that if you really want kids to learn you know they should be playing games and having fun and learning kind of in the background they shouldn't be doing math exercises on the screen. And what he could have said was, no kidding, I've been doing this for 10 years, get out of my office. But instead of that, he opens a drawer, he pulls out this document, he blows on it, and this like cloud of dust flies off of it. He says, this is a script I wrote for a game eight years ago. How about if you build it for us and we'll sell it? I tell him, that sounds great. And he says, what are you going to build it in? And I had no technical skills whatsoever, but I had a friend who knew Visual Basic. So I thought maybe he'd teach me. I'd tell him... Um, I'm going to build it in Visual Basic. And he says, isn't that like reinventing the wheel? Why don't you build it in Director? And I tell him, look, if we're going to be working together, of course I have to adapt to your business practices, so I'll build it in Director. So I shake hands with him, walk out the door, go home, open up Google, which is like brand new. And I type in, what is director? <laughs> <laughs> and this was like, the, this was the the first business that I worked on. And it, it you know, it was, a, I worked on this business for a few years and I did some contract work that I got paid for. And the game never saw the light of day first, because I had no skills. And then because it turned out the script was terrible. Um, but like, this was my you know my immersion into the world of educational technology it was a, a great learning experience. I'm really grateful to the guy who who gave me that opportunity when he really didn't have to
0: right and and yet it's that gumption or naivete or something of youth um, i there's many moments in my my history that I can look back on in fact I was in high school and I, I ended up creating a um, a, a district wide so just our district was a suburban school with graduating class of 1,300, 1,400. So it was a very, very large district. And I got them to recycle polystyrene, the little styrofoam containers. And it all started because I heard an assistant principal say he wanted to get it done, but he couldn't. And then I called up the head of the company that did the garbage pickup, and she took my call. And then I invited her to have a meeting with the assistant principal. And then they had a discussion that was way above my head as I sat there. And they basically got through all the red tape because I invited them to a meeting. Um, So, yes, there are moments in life where sometimes just like making that phone call, people will be like, okay, if you're willing to try it. But it, it sounds like it also, what I like about this story, I know it's really tied to your origin story of what you're doing today, is you were bored you didn't feel like the education system was working it was failing you as an individual student who had been a dedicated student and you were looking for un- like innovative ways to keep that sort of uh, that light that you felt about education had sort of faded and you were like how can i keep that going both personally but also for other people and you know the fact that we're, we're able to tie this arc all the way to where we are today with, the through line is so clear though for most people it's a really broken path so i I can't help but imagine, particularly since we alluded to your own entrepreneurial twists and turns, that it's not that clear a path that there have been some bumps in the road. Like how do you parlay that couple years of dabbling into a career? Like where do you go next? did you did you have to going to school at all after that, or or did that end your formal education?
1: so so there' I mean, that's uh... I would say that's a great question. That's actually like 11 great questions. So I'll, I'll try to answer some of them and you can you can redirect me. But, um, you know, I worked on this game project for a few years. In parallel with that, I got involved with a telecom startup that uh, was a really – it was basically – uber for um for any kind of service like you need a plumber you press a button a plumber shows up and that went nowhere a because the technology was nowhere near what it needed to be for that to work and b even if it was i didn't have the skills to build it but once you know, we again tried. like
0: you walked into these moments like i, I was
1: you know what? i was living in israel at the time and we had signed agreements with two of the four major telecommunications companies in the country and in hindsight i'm like how, to, how to, and there was no product i didn't know how to build anything but Unbelievable. It's just, you know crazy so um so i did that for a while i was in the military for a few years because in israel you know it's mandatory um got out of that came back to canada which is where i'm originally from and started building a, a software company a, a company that you know i was going to build my own games teach kids how to read um and i worked on that for a number of years and uh i i you know brought some people on. They got excited by the vision. I brought in some money from friends and family and like loans and grant programs. The experts loved uh, the prototype. The kids loved it. And uh, the parents and teachers who are the actual customers, they totally didn't get it. Um, and by the time I figured out how I needed to pivot, like we were bleeding money. It was all gone. I was like, all right, I'm ready to hit the pavement, raise more cash. And that was September of 2008. The markets crashed. There was like no more money. So I walked away from that with um, about a quarter of a million dollars in personal debt, as you, as you alluded. Um, and, and that was not a fun experience. Not financially, but also like, for anyone who's listening to this who hasn't had the experience of like, a startup company imploding on you, it feels a lot like going through a really bad breakup right? So, you know, it's, it's just emotionally, it's rough. And after you go through a really bad breakup, you're not ready to start dating again right away. You're like, you need to lick your wounds for a little bit. So I come out of this, I'm like, well, I still have to pay bills. So what can I do that doesn't involve raising capital? It doesn't involve hiring a team, right? You know, what could I do that would be like a casual thing on the side? I was basically looking for the rebound business. And, um, and I started this blog where I was teaching about marketing, um, and you know, long story short, one thing led to another. Here we are, like a decade later, and I have a team of a couple dozen people, and it's a multi-million-dollar business. So sometimes the the rebound is
0: the one. Sometimes um, the rebound is the one, and that's but what also sometimes what I also hear is that you you also pivoted into a lane that you actually knew something about by that point. Like you you yes. maybe didn't have all the skills around the technical computer stuff. You had a vision, but by that point you got. Good at marketing. You had lived through.
1: Well, by that that. point, I had a decade of experience as an entrepreneur. So yeah, absolutely. Um, And and I'll I'll loop back to answer you asked about my continuing education. So after all of that imploded, and you know, when you're in this place of like, maybe I need some security, maybe I need some stability. I did go back to school. I got an MBA from one of the top business schools in Canada. Um, So I have an elementary school diploma, and I have an MBA, and I have nothing in between. Um, And people ask me how. The, how that was possible, and I said, "Well, there are um, there are programs in most uh, most good schools where you can bypass the undergraduate degree um, if you have a high enough GMAT score and an interesting application and all that." Um, and nobody nobody ever asked about high school. <laughs> People just assume, <laughs> so like there wasn't even a box to check. So um, so that's that's kind of how that played out, and wow. uh, it, it was not a good use of time or money in hindsight, but an interesting <laughs> experience.
0: Well, I think Danny, if you're the kind of person who's willing to go reach out at 15 and a half to talk to a CEO, you could talk your way into getting an MBA. Like, that didn't surprise me at all. <laughs> like, that, that seems very par for who you are and, and the story that you're telling. Now, as far as the experience, though, did you meet people in the MBA program that you've like that helped you as you're sort of making this pivot and making this shift? No, nothing. No. It didn't help even that way.
1: No, it was, like, people, so I say it was not a good use of time or money, and people sometimes ask me, are you saying you'd be better off without the MBA than with it? Um, And that's a a false question, because, sure, I'm better off with an MBA than than, than without it. I learned something. But the real question is, am I better off with the MBA, or what else I could have done with $84,000 and um, two years of my life kind of thing? Um, And I mean, I've given a, a, I've spoken to Google about this, but you know, I I think higher education is such a racket these days. Um, But you know, if, if you are a uh, kind of mediocre middle manager and you want to have a longer career in banking or insurance or something like that, it's like perfect for you. For most of the real economy, it's just, it's such a waste of time and money.
0: Yeah. You know, I live in Boston, Massachusetts where everyone has multiple advanced degrees and I only had like, you know, I, I have one master's, and it's living here for 20 years. It's you start feeling an itch to get another. It's it's a it's like okay, I already you know I've done that path, <laughs> but there are certain like enclaves where that is the world that you know people sort of operate in. But if the, if that's not true for you, like you
1: well, know. and and but to be clear, I'm not saying there's no good reason to pursue further education, higher education, right? If it's a subject that you're passionately interested in. Then I mean I, I strongly advocate self-directed learning on anything you're interested in. I think that's always worthwhile. Um, I, I think if you want the the biggest common thread of people who've been massively successful, you want to look for, and you'll find in almost every case, um, multiple areas of past specialization. Right. So you know over the course of their career, they you know this person became the. Um, you know, an Olympic tennis player and is, is a nationally ranked halo player or something, right? But like people who found like, you know, this is something I'm interested in, I'm going to go deep. So if, if you're interested in something and you want to go deep on it, go for it. But the, um, the, the the higher education degree as kind of the the imagined golden key to a life of prosperity, I think that's
0: nonsense. That's how I feel about home ownership, actually. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, You know, in the last decade, 12 years now, uh, you've transformed, like you said, this, this from, you know, blog to this amazing company that I'm proud to be a member of as one of your ACES coaches. Um, And I know you've had some evolutions. I know that the, it went from Firepole, I went to Miracy. I know that you started hiring a team. I know that your wife and your mother and your brother and your cousin all work with you. How did that evolution, like how did it become a family business and they all bought into this idea and brought their own talents and own expertise?
1: You know, it's it's funny that you ask that because, and maybe this is just like, you know, it's a lag to wake up to reality. Um, kind of like I didn't think of myself as an entrepreneur until I was in my 20s, even though like, you know, I started doing it when I was in my early teens. But like, I don't think of Miracy as a family business. <laughs> um, you know, I started this business and... Um, as the demand for what we did grew, as there was more to build, um, I've always been bullish on, um, A, that you have to invest before you see a return. Like, a lot of entrepreneurs are like, I want to see my business make lots of money, and then I'll invest in growing it. And I'm like, that does, that's not really how it works in real life. So I'm, I'm bullish on investing first, and I'm also bullish on the idea that there's a low ceiling on what you can build by yourself, right? Um, greatness is in the agency of others. So... Um, early on I was like I'm going to bring on bring people on and we're gonna grow what we can accomplish and all that um, and I built a team and it started local and at some point uh, we were probably seven or eight people on the team when I kind of asked myself you know do I do I want the best people that I can find in Montreal or do I want the best people I can find And that's how we became a, a distributed organization but you know when when you say family business the image that conjures to my mind is, you know, that you hire from within the family circles before you go anywhere else, and like a lot of nepotism. So it's like, what can I give this person to do? What can I give that person to do? And neither of those things were true, right? I had um, six or seven people on the team before I convinced my wife to leave her her high-paying corporate consulting career and come join me. And it took like six months of persuasion. That was a protracted negotiation. Uh, And she came on board. And then we hired a whole bunch of other people before Um, someone else who was a family member joined the team. And, you know, I never hired someone who's a member of the family because, you know, well, I want to give them a job. I always hired them. Like, actually, some of the hardest people for me to recruit have been people that I'm related to. Like, I had to, you know, work on them and convince them. Like, so case in point, Joey, who's our – she's my cousin, she's our director of operations – Right. She's the reason I wanted to hire her is that she's smart and she's on the ball and she's sharp and she's capable. Like She's, she's the kind of person, you know, if you, if you can have five of her, then, then you would want that. Right. And she went through two other jobs. And over the course of two or three years where I was kind of subtly commenting, you know, there could be an opportunity here. And, and like it took two or three years to get to the point where she was ready to explore it. um so so it, like when you say family business the, the image i guess it conjures in my mind is very different from from our experience and at the same time i should acknowledge that yes i am related to probably 20 25% of our workforce so that <laughs> that that does say something too
0: well i um, think that it well, I, it's great to hear actually ha- the evolution of that because it's also clear that you that the people who are on the team are all very talented. It's, it's It's not just like I was giving someone a job. And, you know, I actually went through your hiring process. and I, I want to give kudos because I know that also must have evolved. But before I even had a conversation with someone, I'd gone through this battery of like personality tests, and like, here's examples. And I had just been talking to my wife about how hard hiring is and how often people hire because they like somebody, not because, you know, like the hire because they like, seem like they'd be a good fit, not because they know how to do the job. Like fit should be part of it, but you should know if they can do the job. So before I had a conversation with anyone, I'd already done the, I could do the job part. And I said to my wife, this is how everyone should do this. And I just, that's an example for me of how I feel you as the like head of this, but everyone on the team approaches tackling a problem. Like there are ways that everyone's always done it, and then there's the you know let's re-examine that, flip it on its head, and do it our own way, and learn from what we're doing. That's that's you. Like I feels like that's who you are, and you've you like that's in, been infused <laughs> into the rest of us about how to approach a problem. Is that do, am I articulating a vision that you are hoping for?
1: Uh, well, you're certainly articulating a very flattering vision, and I, I appreciate it. Um, but so so let me share kind of the genesis of that hiring process because i I think it's probably instructive to to what we're doing in the broader sense so um, my first attempt at hiring people was when i was building my software company when i was uh, in my kind of earlier mid-20s and i did all the stupid things that everybody shouldn't do when they hire right i i hired people because i liked them i hired my friends And I had a um, ragtag, you know, in certain small places competent, but generally largely incompetent and disorganized organization, right? And, you know, organizations are a a reflection of their leadership. Like I was young, I didn't know what I was doing. So, you know, that's not putting it on anyone who works for me, but that's the team that I assembled. And um, then... Years later, and and I'm a person who likes to go deep on things I'm interested in. So, you know, when I'm reading about things for fun, like I'm usually reading nonfiction. It's usually um, business, psychology, uh, social science, education. Those are the things that I'm interested in. And the interesting thing is that the the research-based best practices on how to do a lot of things are way ahead of the industry standard practices and the way people approach them. So when it came time for me to hire my first employee at Firepole Marketing, which is now Miracy, right, I just said, you know what, I I, I messed this up the last time, I want to do it right. So I kind of designed my own process based on all these best practices that I had found. And along the way, I was like, well, what if I innovate it here? What if I change something there? But in a lot of ways, that's reflective of, of the way we work here at Miracy. Like, I get credit for um, a lot of innovation that is not really mine. Um, you know, I, I definitely put my own spin on things. Like, you know, there's like the last 20%, and maybe that gives us some extra yardage of what we do is kind of my brainchild. But 80% is just like paying attention to what I, I see and hear and learn in the world. Me like, okay, how do we do that? So the way we approach anything is we start with, you know, the question I ask people on my team Every day, what are we solving for? What are we trying to accomplish? And once we know that, we can say, okay, what do we know about how to do this? What is already known that we don't need to reinvent the wheel? And then what can we add to it?
0: I didn't think we'd get through this without you saying, what are we solving for? So I'm glad that came up. (laughs) It's it, no, I've only been on the team since the end of uh, last year. And like, there are certain things that are now like kind of seared into my brain as I'm having conversations with people. Um, Because, you know, you start going down a rabbit hole and then it's like, but wait, what are we solving for? And it stops and reframes the whole conversation. So um, I got to see you do your thing in person uh, at at an event in, in Montreal. And then we were supposed to have another two events in Montreal. And within just like three or so weeks... You exactly went from, three weeks. It yeah. was
1: three weeks from when we made the decision to when we started broadcasting.
0: <laughs> yeah, and and I, one of the things, like, I don't want to tell the whole story, but I, I want to say that what I witnessed, and and there's a, there's a phrase you used. You were certain we were going to meet in Montreal, and I think a lot of people really wanted this to happen, and not just for our event, but for events in general. It was like, come on, this is not going to be that bad. Like we're, you know, it's being blown out proportion. Let's just stay the course. But then when it became clear and you surveyed all of us and talked to everyone and got good counsel, you shifted gears. And like you said, you dove deep into the other plan. And you had a phrase you used about strong ideas held lightly. I can't remember the exact phrase of it, but, you know, strong beliefs. So it's
1: not mine. Yeah, strong beliefs or strong opinions uh, lightly held or loosely held. held.
0: And who is that from? Because that that is like I, I don't know.
1: We'll um, have to look I, it up. I know I didn't make it up. I know that's not original, <laughs> but it's just um, but it it's was Google-able, just a yeah. uh,
0: a very cool thing to witness because a lot of people do get really stuck. This is a leadership problem, really. Like people get so stuck in their I'm right, but you were like okay, so clearly it's not going to work. And I saw this the most amazing seven days like come to come to pass where we did two events back to back, and I was so so awesomely part of it. And I've been touting it as a great example to the world. Like, I've shared that thank you, like, highlights reel with so many people. Cause I'm like, if you wanna know what's possible, and this was only three weeks, like, you know, think about what you could do. So I just wanted to say publicly kudos for pulling that off. Cause we're in a brand new world. And I think that everything you're offering through Miracy is really well positioned. All the, you know, all the courses you're doing, giving people to like have online content and bring their, you know whatever their their thing is to light that they're all like, "I'm passionate about this thing. Well, okay, here's a platform for you. Here's how you can share that with others. I've also imagined though that you have met just like hundreds, thousands of people. you influence more than that over the last you know twenty years. I'm curious though i want I want to dive a little bit into your networking philosophy because I can't imagine you don't have one because you don't seem like you're not a like fly by the sea of the pants person for anything so Let's okay. You have sort of the inner circle, and then there's sort of that second and third layers out—the people you see once a year at a conference, or you worked with five years ago, or you went to school with, or something like that. So, how do you nurture and sustain those sort of those wider parts of your network? Is is there some habits, philosophies, practices that you have around that?
1: Um, so, so, I love the question, and I hate that I don't have a good answer to it. Um, but, the, but, but the truth is that I'm not very good at it. Uh, and this is very frustrating to me because like you and I both know people who are amazing at it, right? Like off the top of my head, two, two friends of mine, John Corcoran and Dory Clark are both amazing at this.
0: And they've both been interviewed on this show. So we'll have to include their interviews in the show notes. <laughs>
1: They're both fantastic, right? Another great example is my friend, Jason Gaynard of Mastermind Talks, right? And they, they do such an amazing job at it. And it's so great for them. And I love the way they make, you know, me, but everyone they know feel and I've had these occasions where it's like, I want to do that. And I'd start being like, well, do it. what CRM would I use or how would I... It, it, but the thing is, it's just not me, right? It's just not... And not that I don't want to make the effort. It's just, it's not how my brain works. So I, I think it's important just as a, a as a perspective for anyone who's listening to this. Like, you can hear about someone's networking strategy and be like, that sounds amazing. I suck because I'm not doing that. But you've got to find the the process that works well for you. So. What I've found works well for me is not like having a giant long list of how do I stay connected with everyone, keep top of mind, because I, I just don't do it. I'm not good at it, unfortunately. But I do always look for how can I add value, right? So if I meet someone, um, I, I don't open with an ask because when I meet them, why would they want to help me? Like they don't know me. <laughs> so I just I look to understand. I look to see who they are. And if there's a way that I can help, if there's a way that I can contribute, then I try to lean into that. And um, I, I learned a really good lesson from another friend. His name is John Rulon. He wrote the book Giftology, and he talks about corporate gifting as a strategy. And uh, one of the things that he teaches is like figure out whatever your budget is for for a gift that you're going to get someone. Let's say that your budget is, um, let's say that your budget is ten dollars. Just case in point, right? So what a lot of people do is they'll they'll be like, well, what can I get for $10 and I'll slap my logo on it or something. And that's how you end up with a lot of like, you know, mediocre cheap kind of swag that gets thrown away. And his suggestion is if your budget is $10 and ask yourself, what's a good gift that you can get for like one or $2 and get like the very best version of that. Right. And because those are the things that get remembered. Those are the things that stand out. And so kind of extrapolating from that lesson If I'm going to do something, I want to go above and beyond in doing it. So here's a really good example. Um, Very early on, um, I I kind of got on a lot of people's radars doing this guest posting strategy. So I'd write on their blogs, and I kind of leveled that up in a bunch of ways, and that was cool. Um, But that gave me a bit of an in with people, and I decided I wanted to put some asset together. So I reached out to a whole bunch of people, and I said, "Um, can you contribute a chapter to this book I'm writing? And it was called Engagement from Scratch. It came out at the end of 2011. It did very well. And I'm very grateful for everyone's contribution. Now, this was the time of like roundup blog posts. So lots of people were kind of doing the rounds. Can you contribute a few paragraphs to this long blog post? And it was a stunt to see if you can get them to link to it. And a bunch of people leave a comment and whatever. And I was like, if I'm going to do something like that, I want to go above and beyond. So I asked them, can you contribute basically the equivalent of a blog post? It would become a chapter in the book. But, you know, it became a physical printed book. And, you know, I made the extra, I was like, you know, no, I don't want this to look like any other book. So it was a non-standard size. It was like not exactly square, but almost square. So it was big, it was heavy, it was nicely designed. And all of the people who contributed, I didn't just send them an email and be like, thank you so much. I sent them not one, but three copies in a box. And there was a note that says one copy is for you, two copies are for whoever, whoever in your life you appreciate, please share. Because right? like if they were going to do something for me, I want to come back like so above and beyond that it would be memorable. So whatever you do with people, like look for if you're going to do it, do it really well. You, you and I talked about this at the beginning of this conversation because my practice now that I've been on a lot of podcasts, and in some cases I've done a better job, in some cases I've done a worse job, is that before I go on a show, I'll listen to a few episodes of the show to get a sense of the rhythm. And hardly anybody does that. But from my, which I don't understand. Like I understand that it's time-consuming, but I don't understand why you would want to be on a show that that you don't think is worth even listening to for for half an hour, an hour. Um, but I think doing the things that most people don't do is a wonderful opportunity to stand out. So that's something that that has been kind of an MO, and just being a good friend, helping out where you can, and and you know investing in kind of leaning into the relationship more. Um, I can share, like, this is a very concrete strategy, actually. So a lot of the growth of my business has come from joint venture partners, right? So, you know, they would promote a launch that I'm doing or I would do a webinar for their audience or something and a bunch of people would buy stuff and a lot more people would opt into my email list. And, you know, that's where most of the, you know, over the years we've had like, you know, over 100,000 people subscribe to our content. So that's where most of them came from. And people ask me, how do you build this giant network, right? You have hundreds and hundreds of joint venture partners. And the answer is that in 2011, I was in this small, free email-based mastermind group, and I invested in relationships, and I contributed to that group. And um, about a year later, I had enough of a connection with a few people. That I said, hey, how about if I do a webinar for your audience? And we were all starting out. We were all you know, small audiences, a few thousand email subscribers, but I did a webinar for like three people. And I went above and beyond. I made it as good as I could. I communicated every day and I did a debrief afterwards, what went well, what could be better. And then I asked them two questions. I said, first of all, when can we do it again? Right. And we'd put it again in the calendar for six to twelve months. And second, do you know one or two people you could introduce me to? And that just doing that, lather, rinse, repeat is literally that's the only thing. That's how I went from three joint venture partners to 350 in in, I don't know, four or five years.
0: You know, what's remarkable about this is that you started by saying that you don't feel like you have a strategy and it's because your strategy is different than the ones you described. Like you're not doing Dory's dinner or Jason's dinners, you know, John with his 50 conversations list, like you're not doing those things, but what you are doing is you're seeing people and you're letting them know that you see them and you're, you're giving them the value that they need. You're not just doing the generic, I'm giving value, but you're like, this is what this person needs. I imagine you would ship a book to a person if you thought they would, that it would be helpful to them. Like you're a person who's like, oh, I would make this introduction because I think you two would really benefit. Not, I feel like I need to be doing this because it's like, I'm supposed to be doing it. And so there's a way in which you're cutting through the like, you know, rote way that, you know, a CRM would not serve what you're doing. But a lot of people that I've worked with either don't have the instincts that you have or they think to do a thing and then they, it stop. they stop. They like don't follow through with that offer. Like what they think to do the nice thing. And I mean, I even talked to a client who said, I was having a conversation and I thought of this great book recommendation and the conversation shifted. So I never told her, but I did do a follow-up email. I said, oh, that's great. She goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I go, but did you mention the book? And she goes, no. (laughs) She goes, but I know I'm supposed to do a follow-up email. So I always do the follow-up email. I'm like, but your follow-up email was a generic nice to meet you. <laughs> like, but you had a thing that you, so I think that you have nurtured something and people will remember that. Like the thing that you do is more memorable than all the the other sort of like, oh, it must have been three months. I'm hearing from you. Oh, it must have been three months. I'm hearing from you again. Oh, it must be three months, which you know, would be better than I only hear from you when you need something. But what you're doing feels like it's another layer above that.
1: Um, Thank you. you. So I can share how I make that work. Um, I guess it goes again to like whatever your process, whatever your system, it has to play to your, I won't even say strengths, but to your unique configuration of who you are. Um, So the thing about me is that I am uh, mildly obsessive compulsive. Like not enough to have a diagnosis, but definitely enough that like all the papers on my desk are at right angles kind of thing. And you know, I practice in box zero because like it bugs me that the emails are there. It was like it's like a pending to do that's like scratching on my brain. So whenever I have an idea of like, oh, I should do this, I just I write it down and I write it down on a little post-it note or piece of paper and I put that on my desk. And that doesn't get thrown out until I've done the task. And it bugs me that the paper is there. It's like, it's this pending to-do. And so it's just, it's a system that works. Um, and it probably won't work for a lot of people, but everyone can find a way to kind of hack their their natural proclivities to find a structure that will work for them.
0: Well, I think part is that you capture the idea in a way, in a system, and, w- and the intention is to act on that. It's not just like, I had this idea. I think like, you, you know, So everyone will have a different way of capturing it. Some will put it in their, you know, calendar, some will email themselves a note, whatever. But the idea is you capture it and then you act on it so you can clear it from from your to-do list. And but you know, I think that as you get the responses from people who appreciate it, like it makes you want to do it more. (laughs) So there is a little bit of like a muscle. That has to get worked to the point where it becomes like, a, oh, of course I'm going to do this because I know the joy it will bring. It'll make me feel good. Like, so I think for people who are getting started, this is where you and I talked about doing this. Um, I, I'm working on this like 30 day connections calendar challenge, which by the time this airs will have already been out in the world. But you know, just to give people sort of a way to think about, you know, acting on those best intentions in a structured way until it becomes a habit. I think there people need some help getting to the habit phase. As we're moving to the end of this conversation though, and thank you, Danny, for this, I wanna ask you uh, my closing question, which is one of my favorite questions. If we are reconnecting a year from now and reflecting on all that you've accomplished, what are we gonna be celebrating? What are you most looking forward to in the year ahead?
1: Uh, It's a really great question. I knew it was coming because I've listened to past episodes of the show and it's still a hard question to answer. So the, the, the first easy thing to say is, you know, I have a book coming out, or I guess by the time this is aired, it will have come out.
0: Just, just like um, a few days ago, actually, yeah.
1: Yeah, so it's the, I have a book that just came out, and hopefully it will have done very, very well. It will have helped a lot of people. Um, and I'm, you know, excited to to kind of start working on the next book at some point down the line. I mean, you know, you've written a book, so you know how it is. By the time it hits the shelves, you're very excited to share it with the world, but also you're like, you know, it's been a while since you wrote it. You're ready to like move on to the next thing. So, I'm very excited for uh, for this book, Teach Your Gift, to help a lot of people, um, and hopefully, I'll have uh, good progress on the next book as well. But you know, honestly, um, I've found that a lot of the best things. And most interesting things that we do case in point taking lift virtual you don't see them coming from a long way out right the opportunity presents itself and you know you you are flexible and adaptable enough to jump on them so um I, i guess i most look forward to celebrating the things that i don't yet know that i'm going to be celebrating but i'm excited to celebrate when when they've happened
0: well i can't wait to celebrate them with you and uh how can people find you and follow your work um, so, so
1: I do. I have a new book out. So the, the best place to check out my recent work is at teachyourgiftbook.com. Anyone who's interested in taking their expertise and monetizing it online, whether it's through online courses, uh, virtual or remote delivery or learning, um, the book is all about that. This is a, a very hot topic right now. Um, but unfortunately, a lot of what's out there is kind of like a five-year out-of-date playbook. And so that's why I wrote Teach Your Gift. So teachergiftbook.com. Um And barring that, um, you can find more information about my my organization at mirasee, M-I-R-A-S-E-E.com. Um, and I mean, you know, Robbie, you and I work together closely as part of Miracy. So um, they can also reach out to you and you can you can certainly direct them uh, wherever wherever works best.
0: Fantastic. Well, we will have all those links, including to your LinkedIn and Twitter on the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Danny, thank you for this conversation. It's been a pleasure.
1: It has been my pleasure and privilege. Thank you for having me.
0: I hope you enjoyed that interview with Danny. Such a pleasure to speak with him and learn about his leadership journey. What is your key takeaway from our conversation? Something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share what resonated with you in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for episode 194. That's also where you'll find all the links and resources in today's show, as well as nearly 200 archived episodes on this Pinterest-inspired page. Reach out and let me know which were your favorite interviews. You know, I've been talking about bad Zoom a lot lately, which got me wondering, what's been the most awkward, embarrassing, or funny thing you've witnessed or done on a Zoom call? (laughs) Oi, that is pretty bad. Are you tired of being on really bad Zoom calls? Maybe even the ones you've hosted haven't always worked out the way you'd like? I'm hosting a free weekly virtual happy hour every Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern through the end of May. These are a fun way to network while learning best practices for creating community connections through virtual events. Sign up at nomorebadzoom.com. That's right, nomorebadzoom.com. If you enjoyed this episode with Danny, please share with your friends and don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss next week's show. Remember, subscribing is always free. Are you a fan? That's awesome. I'd love to read your review on Apple Podcasts. It's easy to find our page at itunes.ontheschmooze.com. Thank you in advance and look forward to connecting again next week. We'll be interviewing another talent professional who has achieved success in their field or industry. I'll ask probing questions to get them to share untold stories about their leadership journey and how they built and sustained their professional network. Until then, have an amazing week.
1: Thanks for listening to On the Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's on the schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.